1: My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children, and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue, or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime.
2: When you're dealing with children's cases, it's the best interests of the children that are the paramount consideration.
1: Rebecca Badenoch is an accredited family law specialist, nationally accredited mediator and arbitrator she 's trained in collaborative law and as an independent children 's lawyer and i 'm just going to pretend that I know and understand what collaborative law means. Uh, Beck has had nearly thirty years experience practicing in family law uh, she provides legal, strategic, and practical advice on all aspects of family law, including divorce property settlements, binding financial agreements, all this good stuff, Uh, children's matters, same-sex relationships, child support and spousal maintenance. Now, if that's not a daily cesspit of tension, stress, anger and disagreements, I'll eat my size 57 policewoman hat. That was the biggest hat size available and it was still too small. Um, Moving on. I think we all acknowledge how full of anxiety and tension anything to do with family law would be. But in the middle of all that anxiety and tension is often the children in that family law matter, and Beck's the one who often represents those kids in her role as an independent children's lawyer. Since 1997, Beck's been a partner. In charge of various large and well regarded Melbourne family law teams. And she's the co founder and legal practice director at Calshaw Miller Badendock Lawyers in Melbourne since 2018. And you know what? I'm betting that you wouldn't want to start trying to negotiate anything with Beck, like maybe the price of a house she was interested in or a nice piece of furniture on eBay as she'd know all the ways to get you to agree on what she thought was the best price. So welcome, back, and thanks for taking time out of your really busy day for us here at NFI.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, Narelle. It's exciting to be chatting with you.
1: Look, so that we all start off on the same page and understand each other, what is Collaborative law, it sounds so very important and so very serious. Uh,
2: Collaborative law is one of the processes available to people who are separating and it involves um, a far more open way of communicating, I guess. The lawyers and the parties all tend to meet together most of the time. The advice that each lawyer gives to their client is known to the other side. Um, there's full and frank disclosure, which there has to be in all family law matters, but yeah, it's a particular process and, and um, it's it's meant to be far more amicable and get people to work together with the assistance of counsellors and financial advisors and, you know, anybody else they might need to get the best result for the family as a whole.
1: I imagine what you do is so very different a normal courtroom where you're on opposite sides of the fence, as it were, like what you are saying is that you all work together so much more. Hello, one could actually say collaborating. Um, look,
2: can I say to you that most family lawyers in Melbourne, um, and you'll appreciate that it's, you know, we all know each other. I'm sure it's like being a policewoman <laughs> to some extent. We all know each other and those of us who are old enough and ugly enough have worked with each other for decades. So, you know, we, we, um, we, we in Melbourne we tend to collaborate Anyway, and I think that's largely the case with family lawyers across Australia. Certainly, that's my experience in Adelaide and Western Australia. Um, But I I guess collaborative law formalises that process, people sign agreements. you know, and yeah, it's it's a all encompassing process. So you get everybody involved from the beginning, like the financial planners, the accountants, the child psychologists, whatever it is that people need. Whereas I guess with the court process, for example, um that happens in in bits and pieces, which can drag things out. But look, as I say, most most family lawyers are, care about people, and we do the work we do because we care about people. So you find that people do that naturally in any event. If that makes any sense, it certainly
1: does. But now on to something I read about you while I was, whilst I was researching for today, and. I had no idea what it meant. I'm not doing well here, am I? I don't know collaborative law and I don't know what I read. I saw that you were a competitor in the Australian women's keelboat regatta. What on earth is a keelboat?
2: Bless your cotton socks, Narelle. (laughs) You're talking to me about my favourite thing. So don't let me start waxing lyrical about that too much. Um, a keelboat, I, th- I think the kind sort of technical definition is a, is a sailing yacht that has a fixed keel. Um, so it's, yeah, at the Women's Keelboat Regatta is a fantastic event um, and basically sailing historically is a fairly male-dominated sport but a um, – a wonderful woman called Gay Kloh, who just sadly passed away actually, um, started this regatta. And it takes place in the deepest, darkest, coldest months of winter because that's the only time that the male sailors would lend the women sailors their boats. <laughs> and we get out there and we compete.
1: It must be such a great release and a great way to completely forget about what you've been dealing with at work, like feeling the wind in your hair and trying basically to remain upright above the water, I suppose.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when, you were, when we were talking prior to this, you were asking me about how I cope with it. Um, and I mean, beyond the usual supports of family and friends and and colleagues um, have a fairly dark sense of humor at times. (laughs) Sailing is the one thing that I have found which really, really, um, because it engages you both physically and mentally, it actually stops you from thinking about the work that you do. Um, Also, you're out in uh, you know, whether it's rain, rain, hail or shine, you're still out in the fresh air on the water. And I think water is an incredibly calming thing. Um, so, yeah, fantastic. And, you, you know, you're competing and you're doing something healthy and you're um, working as a team with other people. It's a great equaliser.
1: Just being out in the middle of nowhere, no phones, no people, just battling the elements like the wind, the rain, the waves, the sunshine, the salt air, just a different kind of peace that um, I might seek. But it's your release. Maybe I should have come out there with you, Beck. Sounds absolutely beautiful.
2: Certainly, you're not thinking about family law when you're out there doing that, let alone the, the Hobart races. You know, <laughs> you're battling the elements in yourself. <laughs> which is it's it's the most rewarding thing uh, yeah just incredible
1: it's not all roses peace and tranquility though is it you're just talking then about the sydney to hobart i've just in the last few days spoken to a guy with victoria police air wing uh, who was involved in rescuing guys from sinking yachts through 100 foot waves in that race it, it's just unbelievable stuff
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I've got a friend who was in that horrible 98 tragedy and they were on a really small boat and they just – they couldn't help anybody else because they were in distress themselves. So they had to literally batten down the hatches. They turned off their radio so they weren't listening to other people dying and um, hung on for grim death and thankfully they survived.
1: Now, look, let's get on to that other passion of yours, as I can just see, I get the feeling that you could talk about sailing and keelboats for the whole podcast. Well, it's not exactly crime-related, and I think we'd better get on to my theme of crime.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We're going on to my other favourite subject, so that's okay.
1: (laughs) So, how does a family law matter get to court? I would think most people would want to avoid going to court at all costs.
2: So the process is one whereby the – well, it can happen in a couple of ways: at the request of either of the parties to, pro- or any of the parties to proceedings, or at the request of a department such as the Department of Health and Human Services, or indeed on the initiative of the court. And there is a case that sets out the parameters for the appointment of um, ICls, and it, it's I get, I mean to put it bluntly, they're, they're the worst of cases. So they're cases where there is um, domestic violence, mental illness, drug or alcohol abuse, um, mental health issues, cultural issues, parental alienation. Um, the list goes on, but it's all of the things, both, both that put parties in terrible conflict with one another and or where children are at significant risk. So the court makes an order for the appointment of an independent children's lawyer and then Victoria Legal Aid contacts us and says, off you go. They send us the order and some court documents and um, we then go about our business.
1: Do you speak to the kids before going into court and get their views
2: Most of the time, yes. It will depend on their age and their sort of capacity um, to some extent. Um, I'll give you an example of one case that had children ranging from, let's say, about four to 15. Now, speaking to a four-year-old isn't going to achieve terribly much. It will probably just confuse them more than anything else. Um, So you do – I mean, you have to proceed with the the utmost – care and caution, if I can put it that way, because you, you don't want to, I, I call it systems abuse where, you know, children in these situations are already exposed to a lot of professionals, um, often the Department of Health and Human Services, often ch- psych, child psychologists or counsellors, you um, their parents, who may not be coping terribly well for whatever reason. So, you do need to be careful about exposing them to yet another stranger who's sort of butting in and, you know, asking them questions about their lives. But we are, on the whole, yes, we are mandated to speak with children and we explain to them what we do and, you know, how we're trying to help, basically.
1: It must break your heart at times. Like, how do you control your emotions dealing with traumatised, confused, scared little kids? Does that constantly get to you? It must.
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, this is where, you you know, your heart rises into your throat. Um, yeah, um, look – I've, ever since I've been a family lawyer, I've said if you're crying with people, you're not helping them. So you have to you have to balance, you know, the a huge emotion at times um, with hopefully you know a clear head and a a kind heart and you know a practical brain just you know what what's the best pathway forward um i do i think certainly speaking to older children in particular and those who are more self-possessed if i can put it that way i think it does give them a sense of being heard and a sense of having some input into their own destinies because I think one of the biggest thing that things that children feel when their parents separate um, is a complete lack of control over their own lives. And as we all know, you know, ch- children need stability, routine, you know, all of those things that give them, you know, a sense of where they belong in the world. So. I, I, it's my hope, my fervent hope <laughs> that speaking to these children does give them some comfort um, through what's often the most difficult time of their lives.
1: Look, uh, and I know you can't, but oh, you just want to go up there and put your arm around them and comfort them, tell them it's all going to be okay, uh, you're there yeah. to help them. Oh, I know you can't, but gee. No. No, 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 absolutely not. (laughs) In fact, when I
2: first started practising family law, I was told never to touch a client full stop, um, which obviously includes children. Look, with the children, you know, particularly if there are allegations of sexual abuse or any other physical abuse, the last thing you would do is go anywhere near them physically. Um, But you can communicate care in so many other ways, um, you know, as simple as your tone of voice or the, the look on your face. Um, so, but no, no, I would never touch a child, no.
1: Even where to meet and talk with them can make all the difference because an office environment is just so sterile mm. and stiff and unfriendly and not mm. really the kind of place conducive to making children <laughs> feel comfortable.
2: Um, Obviously, over the last year, I've been meeting with children, well, meeting in inverted commas with children by phone or Zoom or, you know, some of this other marvellous technology that we've all become familiar with. Yeah. Um, but it, it, before that, I would meet with them in my office, which thankfully is a converted home, which I think puts people more at ease than going into a big, you know, fancy commercial office. Um, but keep the door open you know um i also i have toys and games and there's a blackboard that you know i've not one day a couple of years ago these two beautiful children came in and they loved the blackboard in fact they loved it so much that they didn't want to leave <laughs> and <laughs> a, a battle to get them out of the office. But the blackboard actually achieved two things. One is it put them at ease and kept them sort of engaged in a way that had nothing to do with me. So they were, you know, they were happily chatting away as they were drawing on the board, which was a very good way of doing it, I think. Um, but also, yeah, it, it didn't make them feel as if they were at an appointment you know they were just chatting to some woman while they were drawing and i think stuff like that can work very well but also it keeps them physically distanced so they're not tempted to run up or you know do all of those lovely things that children do completely unprompted you know
1: yeah so what does your role and is as an independent children's lawyer entail Oh um, well, I guess we've talked
2: about quite a lot of it. I think already in just in terms of you know what you do when you're actually face to face with them. Um, but I think it, other ways, and this is I guess the more sort of formal aspect of it is is getting them the care that they need. Um, you know, do they need a counsellor? Do they need um, you know, whatever it is that they might need, but also really focusing on on the outcomes that are going to give them safety and security and um, a, the routine that I was talking about before. Um, you know, you, you talk to a lot of parents down the track or sometimes even the children when they're older and – they say, thank you so much. And it's only then that you realise that you've done the right thing, you know. But, I mean, asking judges to make orders that that aren't always popular too. And I'm sure you will know from your own work and everybody who's a parent certainly knows that um, sometimes you've got to make tough decisions. Um, I've recently made submissions for children's um, place of residence to change and that's something that you have to do with absolute caution and you honestly your heart in your mouth thinking, God, I hope I'm doing the right thing here because ultimately you never know. And I'm sure, again, from your experiences, you know, you just the proof's only in the pudding and you just don't know what's going to happen but you can only do your best. And that that also involves getting absolutely as much information as you possibly can. So, you know, speak to the schools, speak to their um school counselors, speak to the people who are involved in their activities um you know, so that the court has all the information it possibly can in front of it to make the best best decision because the family law act mandates that that's you know when you're dealing dealing with children's cases it's the best interests of the children that are the paramount consideration and so I get, we you know, we, we start from that end point and work back if that makes any sense.
1: It does, Beck. Perfect sense. So how do you manage dealing with the kids? Um, because much of your day is dealing with not only the kids who feel, um, as we said before, traumatised, confused, scared, but also the parents are feeling like that, like that kind of stuff must target your heartstrings? Um, Well, we talked about sailing at the beginning, so
2: I won't go into that again. Um, Having very good friends and family around me, having – Wonderful colleagues, and as I said, and I think something that you can probably appreciate too, a a very dark sense of humour at times. You know, you wouldn't want a quote-unquote normal person to hear some of the things that we say because they'd definitely be misunderstood. Um, but also I think I might I might have mentioned to you, and this, this should be taken in the vein in which it's meant, but I, I have a friend who has very kindly put herself in my firing line and um, most Fridays she'll either ring me up or we'll meet um, to catch up and we talk about the job of the week, um, which gives me an opportunity to – Uh, download, I guess, you know. And look, sometimes it will be funny cases. More times, more often than not though, it's the ones that that have kept you up at night. And it's just nice to talk to someone else about how things have gone.
1: So is there a particular reason you went down the path of assisting children in the court process? What was your, uh, what would you call it, why did you do that? Um, a few, I guess.
2: Of, of, first and foremost, yes, loving and caring about children and more broadly families in distress. Um the second is that, you know, look, as, as you said at the beginning, I've been practising for about 30 years and, you know, m- most lawyers will do work at a community legal service or something like that to give back to the community and I did that for many years and then decided that this ICL work would be, would be my giving back. Um we do get paid for it, but it's it's it probably costs us more to do the work than we get paid, <laughs> and that's not a complaint at all um that you know it's it's a conscious choice. Um, the third thing, I guess is that when I first started practicing as a family lawyer, baby lawyer I used to call it the first um the first case I ever had was a case in the county court. Which tells you how long ago it was, um, where a woman's children had been removed from her care because she had allegedly sexually abused them, uh, and they were they were two and three years old when this allegedly occurred. Um, the The order for the removal of the children had been in place for a year and was about to expire, and the foster parents who were terrified. Um, for many reasons, asked me to help try and protect the children. And so we went to court to try and to stop the children being returned to the mother's care. Um, and very sadly, we failed. Um, and for years, I, well, I still wonder what happened to those children. Um, and it's, it's um, yeah, it stays with you. But so that's, that's, def- that cases like that are definitely one of the reasons um, I want to do this work. Because um, if you help one child, and again, as I'm sure you know from all your, you know, experience, you um, can
1: make a difference. So have you ever wondered on leaving court whether you or, and or the court have made the right decision about a child? because I can remember many a night going home after court or after dealing with kids and their parents, wondering whether I'd made the right call about um, allowing a child to return to either parent or a carer and how that child was going to cope. Oh, it's an awful feeling. Oh,
2: absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, look, I you know, what we do is nothing compared to what you've seen, I think um, well, maybe it's just different uh, again, one of the first clients I think I ever had um, was a a man who was very distressed about not seeing his children and um, we you know we we walked through that case obviously I wasn't a children's lawyer in that case i was a I was acting for him as a parent and Sorting out his property stuff, but you know, we we were—I um, literally held his hand, well, not figuratively held his <laughs> hand, all the way through what were some very difficult and distressing proceedings for him as a parent, and both of us felt that the result was not what it should have been. Um, but I, you know, I, you know, half feeling my way through it, I think I said to him. Your children will figure this out themselves eventually, and they felt like fairly hollow words at the time. I can, you know, I just thought, oh, what else am I meant to say to this poor man? Um, but oddly enough, fifteen years later, he got in touch with me and said, "Do you know what, Beck?" you were right. (laughs) I nearly burst into tears, you know, with with joy for him. Or just, you know, he said, I listened to what you said and bless him for doing that. Um, But he was back in touch with his children. And it's just that stuff like that, you
0: know. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...
1: Can't beat it. Yeah, it makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Well, it's a
2: privilege to do it, isn't it?
1: Gee, it can be tough at times. Um, Mm. Mm. I know there's many cases that have kept me awake at night.
2: Oh, all the time, all the time. Um, Oh, look, you know – The wisdom of Solomon would be a great thing, wouldn't it? You can can only do your best, and I hope that doesn't sound flippant, because again, those of us who work in this space, including you, you know, I think we all we all do it because we do care. Um, I think that's all you
1: can do, don't you? Yeah, I know what you mean. Go home, think, and will they be okay? As I said, have I done the right thing? What if I've made the wrong decision? What if I'm wrong? What will happen to them? Oh, it's awful. You've got to trust your gut
2: at some point in time, and I know that might sound trite, but once you've – found as much information as you possibly can and you know listen to the social scientists because I'm not a psychologist I'm not you know um, and you know just going sort of sort of moving off topic slightly for a second I think you know all of us could benefit a from some counseling ourselves to deal with the the Broadly based trauma of this work, but also perhaps more training in in the psychological aspects of it all. Because you know, it's easy to be a tough lawyer. You know, we can all fight the good fight, which we do. Um, and certainly, you know, in property cases, uh, it's a far less emotional. Well, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes less less emotional a proposition, um, but. Yeah. I'm not sure that there's a hard and fast answer to that. Don't you think? You know, you you just got to do your best.
1: Yeah, I don't know what else you can do other than your best. Like if you haven't done your best, I think you need to take a long hard look at yourself and maybe consider whether you've had enough and you might need to do something else, have a a bit of a break because it's people's lives and emotions that you're dealing with and it's not whether a couch is his or hers. This is about people's emotions and you have to have that passion, don't you? Yeah. Um, Have you ever been concerned about your own safety during a matter at court? Because family law court matters can get very, very emotive, can't they? Lots of anger, frustration.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Um, That case I was telling you about before with the two children in the county court, this was before they had security at courts. Um, The mother actually produced a knife in open court and tried to stab me, which was an interesting development. (laughs) I had to be escorted by police back to my office. Yeah, that was a bit... Oh, well, it's happened to me twice. Um, I've had people at court try and punch me. I had a client who stalked me for years. So, yeah, I mean, there is definitely a potential risk. Um, and you have to be circumspect and, and careful. Um both about your, well, I mean, my primary concern is my clients' safety because they're usually the ones who, who are in the firing line. But certain no, lawyers can be um, targets as well. You know, if you're doing something that people don't like, some people will try and get retribution.
1: Have you got any ideas of how the family law process could improve? Like, what could we do now? to Start that ball rolling? Uh, if I had to pick
2: one thing, it would be listening to social scientists. Um, so, child psychologists and counsellors, and all of those people who are incredibly experienced in these things and have a level of knowledge that we will never have. You know, I think we all become amateur or wannabe psychologists. Um, but the, the people who are properly trained and educated in these things are many of them are extraordinary, and many of them go above and beyond and I really think that you know the as time has gone on, they have become more and more important in how we deal with these things, and also just the acknowledgement that um uh you know, the welfare of children is the paramount thing in all of this. And also I think having specialist judges, which is something that you may or may not know is potentially up for grabs at the moment and, and a very contentious thing. But I think having a specialist court is crucial. You've got to have people who understand what they're dealing with, you know. Otherwise it's just like me. am not trying to do my own plumbing, you know, it, it it's just not, to my mind, it's nonsense. You've got to have people who know what they're doing. But, yeah, I think we, we do have specialists. We have people, again, who work in the jurisdiction because they care. And um, we, we listen to the experts.
1: Does the court ever allow children to speak and consider their opinions or experiences in family law matters? And if not, do you think children should be given that opportunity?
2: Uh, Look, there, there have been some very rare occasions where children speak. I think the prevailing view is that it's not healthy for children to be put in that position. I mean, as you'd know from your own experience, a court can be a pretty intimidating place. Uh, So, really, the way that that children's evidence is put before the court is largely via the preparation of a family report, which is prepared by a child psychologist, but also, yes – by independent children's lawyers. I should say that there's there's kind of a weird distinction in the sense that the the children aren't our clients as such in the traditional sense of clients. So I don't go to a child and say, what do you want me to do? Um, we have to be m- more judicious than that. Um, so it's, I, I, I think the best way perhaps to to sort of explain it is it's like more like the european system of law that's inquisitorial so you go out and you get information and yes obviously the children's wishes are all part of that puzzle but they're only one part of that puzzle and obviously you know obviously children whilst they might have very strong wishes they um they they're also susceptible to manipulation or any other number of things or influences that might not necessarily be about what's best for them and, and then you sort of you come back to this cruel to be kind concept, you know. I have had occasions where children have been quite cross with me or quite sad about recommendations that I have made and, again, or you – all you can do is, is cross your fingers and hope that you've done what's best for them.
1: What's the age of the youngest child you've represented? Three months old. Oh, that's so sad. Mm. Boy, life's begun with a battle for that little person, hasn't it?
2: Yeah. And you do think, goodness me, you know, if if you've had this level of intervention in your precious young life, you know, yeah. That that stuff can be really very sad
1: what's one of the biggest frustrations uh, working at the family law court? <laughs> money in delays
2: that was easy <laughs> well look there just there aren't enough bodies you know there aren't enough judges, there aren't enough registrars, there aren't enough counselors there aren't enough psychologists. Um, and yeah, without wishing to be political about it, you know that 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 then goes to the money aspect. Um, we have had some new judges appointed recently and some new registrars, um, which is fantastic um, and really encouraging. Um, but you know, and I'm sure you've heard the horror stories, like everybody else. You know, court lists blowing out to to eighteen months and. All this stuff and having to say to people, look, I'm sorry, but you're in the queue, you know, that, that's cold comfort to someone who's in, in distress and desperate. And then you look to other avenues like mediation and, um, or counselling or, you know, all the other things, tools that we've got in our, in our toolkit. But litigation really, you wouldn't wish it on, on anybody. It's, it's no fun.
1: So is court the last resort? Do people attending the family law court have to attend mediation or something else prior to fighting it out at court?
2: Yes. So in children's cases, except in super urgent cases like, if you know, if there was a kidnapping happening or sexual abuse or, you know, again, that, that same list of, of things that ends up with someone like me being appointed, you can jump in. If those factors are there, but if it's if it's just and I say that with quotation marks around, if if it's just a dispute between parents about you know where the children live or spend time, then um, no, you have you have to attempt to mediate before they'll let you in the door, which I think is a very good thing um, because it gives the opportunity to resolve things in a civilised manner. I mean, as we all know, the minute you're in court, it's an adversarial um, system and to push yourself up, you've necessarily almost got to push the other person down, um, which destroys any vestiges of relationships that people have. Um, And as, as, again, you would know, I'm sure, from your experience in court, things don't always pan out the way you think they will. And the minute you're sitting in the witness box giving evidence, you've you've lost control, you know, of what's gonna to happen to you. And, you know, we all know from the plethora of TV shows around lawyers that, you know, whilst cross-examining might be really, really good fun for us from an intellectual perspective, it's the most horrendous thing to experience. I've I've been cross-examined once and I did not enjoy a second of it. (laughs) You just want to get out of there as quickly as you can. Um, So you try and warn your clients about all that stuff and, look, There's a whole raft of people that we never see as lawyers and they're the people who manage to resolve things themselves. For those who don't, I would like to think that that we do our best to resolve things quickly and sensibly and as amicably as possible. But if you have to go to court, then you you put your best foot forward.
1: What's the general timeline in getting a matter in front of a magistrate? Oh... At the moment, it's
2: about a year, give or take.
1: It's just too long. It's so unfair on all the parties. But also the parents' lives are in the balance until a decision is made.
2: It is. Yeah, it is. And look, they all work very – well, everybody works really very hard at at getting these things done as quickly as possible. And obviously the the more desperate the case, the more priority they're given but, but the law is and again you will know this firsthand the law is clunky and it's really it's not designed to deal with human relationships it's just not but and you know and that's why there's this constant search for for a better way when I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of mediation myself um, but obviously you've got to be careful in mediation about power imbalances and people with fixed negotiating stances and cultural issues and, you know, all all of the things that could mean that someone might actually be at risk in a mediation either um, physically or emotionally at first instance but then perhaps just as importantly, at risk of of being bullied into making a decision that's that's not in their best interests. So you've got to be careful about balancing all of those things.
1: What's one of the worst decisions you've been involved in?
2: Yeah, look, it it would have to be the case we were talking about before with the two very young children who were um, allegedly abused by their mum. And I think I might have said to you when we were first discussing this, um, some of the evidence was lost. Which yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, try try and be diplomatic about that. But the trouble was that the loss of evidence meant that we couldn't prove to the judge that anything had happened. And you know, you you want to talk about trauma? What what must that do to young children? When really, the message that's coming to them is you, have, you, you haven't been believed that frightens the living daylights out of me, because um, it must have long-term consequences. We're well, not at must, it does. Um, so Yeah, no, that will stay with me forever, that case.:
1: You obviously deal with extremely traumatic, serious situations, mm. But surely there's been one or two which are so trivial. You've wondered how it ever got to fighting it out in court. Oh, gotcha. Or maybe I'm sure you felt like telling the warring parties to just buddy grow up. <laughs> um,
2: I can. I'm just trying to think of the best one to tell you. <laughs> uh, again, funnily enough, when I was a baby lawyer, this this case had nothing to do with children. It was just a property settlement, just a property settlement. <laughs> anyway, um, I was representing the husband in this particular case, and we've settled everything. You know, we'd done the deal about who got all the money and the cars and the superannuation and God knows what else was involved, and we were about to go before the judge to have the agreement ratified and made legal. And my client said to me, but I'm not settling this case until she gives me back what turned out to be a broken hat stand and one of the ugliest paintings I think I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) It was just, it was going to cost him more to argue about those two items than they would have cost to replace. And I said, I will buy you a ruddy hat stand with my own money, said the girl who was being paid $30,000 a year. This is just absurd. I said, I'm not going into court and arguing about that, not doing it. You know? <laughs> Thankfully, he listened to me, but I had to be fairly um, strong about it. <laughs> Broken hat stand, honestly. I do Laughing about that, though, I do think with some people – Fighting is just another way of holding on to people sometimes. Sometimes people have huge disagreements about the way things should be, whether they're philosophical or financial or whatever it might be. But then there are those people who just can't let go. And fighting is one, albeit perverse, way of remaining engaged with someone. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So... We try and avoid that for people. As I said, I th- I think it wasn't about the hat stand. Well, it obviously wasn't about the hat stand. <laughs> I think it was about, about hanging on, which is, is quite sad really, you know. And look, I have had, you know, numerous clients who have just not learned how to let go you know and that then you can start talking about the cycle of grief and who is more advanced in the cycle of grief out of out of war, warring partners because obviously the person who is more advanced in on that journey is 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 going to make more rational decisions or, and going to be able to deal with the, the process of negotiation better whereas the person who's sort of lagging behind emotionally is going to be more irrational and i think that's it will certainly that's something we have to take into account when we're dealing with our clients because you might think god you're being an idiot but you know then you've got to look behind that current kind of behavior and say okay you know just looking at it you know head on it looks stupid and irrational but there's obviously a reason behind it and then and then we get it back into the area of amateur psychology <laughs> but it's fascinating human nature is fascinating i think and i'm sure you do too <laughs> you know that's why we talk about these things isn't it but The other thing, too, I think th- this isn't a hard and fast rule, but I think the more educated the person, the more they try and second guess the process and inevitably it trips them up because, you know, rule one of being cross-examined is yes or no answers, not volunteer your life story and start meandering around issues that have got nothing to do with it, you know? But um, it's him, again, and that's about the lack of control the minute you're in the witness box, you know. people You see these people who are super, super confident and all you want to do as their representative is jump into the witness box and tell them to shut the hell
1: up, you know. (laughs) Can you tell us if there's a case or what case it is that um – has kept you awake at night and maybe still does and never left you. I think we've all got one or two of them.
2: Before I started doing family law, I had a, a brief and painful apprenticeship in personal injuries law. And um, I did a case that was all over the news at the time. Um, a woman who was pregnant with twins had slipped over in coals and the children were born spastic diplegic and spastic quadriplegic. Oh, and my heart's in my throat when I talk about this too. But anyway, she was suing the supermarket in question and there were, you know, behind the scenes there were insurance companies fighting about whether a pregnancy with twins constitutes one or two accidents and all sorts of charming stuff like that. But you we were in the Supreme Court and um the mother of these children was giving her evidence. And forgive me if I get emotional, but I know I do when I, whenever I tell this story. Her barrister said to she she had given the most beautiful, honest straightforward evidence I'd ever, I'd ever heard and almost still ever have heard to this day. There was not an ounce of self-pity in this woman. She was just extraordinary. And then her barrister said to her, where does one, one of the girls um, spend most of her days? And she burst into uncontrollable floods of tears and shaking. And we had to adjourn and give her some time to calm down. And we came back and he asked her the same question again. And she said, she spends her time in the back room.
1: Oh, Rick. That that is so sad. Oh.
2: Sorry, I knew I'd cry. <laughs> um, but it, the entire courtroom was in tears and the case settled shortly after that. <laughs> so that's a good result. Um, but, yeah, the unpredictability of evidence, you know. Sorry to tell a distressing story, but it. it I think it bears telling – you know, so people know what they're getting. Them.
1: Oh, Narelle. Oh, I've got to admit <laughs> yeah, it's all right. hard to keep going after that. Jeez, thanks, Beck. I've got to try and get myself, myself together oh, here. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Oh, how could you not be affected by that? If you're not, you don't have a heart. They just, but they never leave you, do they? I'm sorry to upset you, but I'm glad you feel it too, you know. <laughs> Oh, dear. How am I supposed to go on after that?
2: (laughs) I don't know. Look, Norelle, it's your train. You tell me.
1: (laughs) I actually wasn't expecting you to be consoling me here, (laughs) Beck. Oh, deep breaths. (sighs) Now that's a surprise. (laughs) Dear me. So what sort of advice would you give people listening now who are considering going through the family law court to determine the outcome of their particular situation?
2: Um, Get really good advice. Get really good support. And I don't mean family members and friends. And I know that – I mean, you need them too, without question. A a word of caution about family members and friends, they inevitably have a vested interest in the outcome. And because of that, don't always give the best advice. So whilst you need them like never before in terms of general emotional support and other things like that, get professional support from someone who does not have a vested interest in the outcome of your case. Excuse me, and, and yeah, get, get good advice and find someone you trust, you know. It's an incredibly important relationship and don't, not everybody gels, you know. Someone that I feel comfortable with or who feels comfortable with me, next person may not at all. So find a good fit, get good advice and follow that advice and, and get really good professional support. Which I probably think you know is good advice for all of us. Really, <laughs> Not- well,
1: Beck, we might end end it up or wind it up here. I I think I'm gonna have to go and have a cup of tea and a good lie down. <laughs> oh no, well, thank, thank you so much. I've got to say thank you for what you've done um, and what you're doing for those in our community at their most vulnerable. There must be so many kids out there who like that man who came back to you fifteen years later to say thanks and you were right when you advised him that his kids had sorted out in time when they realised what he'd done for them. There just must be so many more out there that you've helped to, who probably don't even realise it. No. Thank you, Norrell. Thank you thank you for what you do. I just think sort of what a shame that the court system doesn't run like the family law court where it's collaborative rather than adversarial. Yeah, yeah. It would be just such a, um, a much friendlier place with less anxiety and stress and because court's hard enough without all that added into the mix. Yeah. But thank you from those who are too young, too distraught or too distressed. Yeah and don't remember what you've done for them. Are all right? And I don't feel bad. It, it just shows the human side of what we do and how it affects us.
2: Oh, and look, I'm not embarrassed about getting teary at all. I think it's, I think it's healthy.
1: Like most of us, I suppose, who care and have compassion and empathy for each other.
2: This has been really lovely, Narelle. Thank you. Thanks, Beck.
1: it's Narelle here again thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together but to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser interviews hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave a rating and even a review and please share it with all your friends too and again thanks for joining us We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya.